Hello. Uh, welcome, everyone. My name is Annabelle Lacroix. I'm curator for public programs here at ACA. Welcome to uh, ACA and tonight's uh, symposium titled Isms, Feminist Art and Editorial Histories. To start, I acknowledge the Boomerang people um, of the Kulig Nation as the traditional owners and ongoing carers of country. I acknowledge elders, and in particular, Nawit Kaling Briggs, um, who is the chair of ACA's uh, Yalingwa um, Advisory Committee, um, as well as the ancestors and elders who are here. I acknowledge and also thank Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander here with us, and acknowledge the role of Indigenous women in maintaining their culture. So this symposium is the final act um, in our series, Title Unfinished Conversations. And it's a collective um, discussion that unpacks how feminism is critical and relevant today. ACA's Unfinished Conversations Symposium Series has been um, supported by the Traveller Foundation, Office of Prevention and Women's Equality, the University of Melbourne and Art Guide Australia, as well as our symposium partner, Sheila, a foundation for women in visual art. And I thank you all of the partners for making this symposium possible and for advancing the discussion around feminism and women in the arts. So I'm now delighted to invite um, Angela Goda, who is a Sheila board member and uh, director of Griffith University Art Museum, to introduce the work of Sheila. Angela has re recently joined the board with Sheila, um, and she is also at the university three years ago and before that seven years as curator of Australian art um, at the Queensland Art Gallery um, of Museum of Modern Art. Um, thank you, Angela. Thanks, Annabelle. It's great to be here. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land in which we gather today, the, um, the Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation, and acknowledge elders past, present, and future, and all First Nations people here today. The late Lady Sheila Crothers loved artists. She loved people, and she loved exchanging stories. She was a generous woman with time to listen to others. She began purchasing art in the 1970s when an interest in rediscovering art by women was renewing art histories across the globe. But now, 44 years on, unfortunately, there's still much to do. And the family foundation that she started is transforming itself into Sheila, a foundation for women in visual art. As a national public foundation, our ambition remains the same, to ensure that female artists working today and in the future are treated equally, achieve their potential, and together with past generations of women artists, are supported, recognized, and celebrated. We support important work in this field in many ways, and some involves the panelists who are here today. One way we build a lasting legacy is by supporting purchases for the Crothers Collection of Women's Art, which is based at the University of Western Australia and looked after by curator Gemma Weston, from whom we will hear more this afternoon. In 2015, with funds from the foundation, uh, the collection purchased Kelly Dolly's 95-part work, Things Learnt About Feminism, 
And here we see it as one of the very first works to introduce this extraordinary exhibition, Unfinished Business. Also in 2015, we partnered with NAVA to support Elvis Richardson in her work as the Countess, providing funding to undertake the data collection and formulate the Countess Report of 2014. Last year, we began discussing possible collaborative projects with contemporary art and feminism, represented here today by Jacqueline Milner, and we look forward to working with them. And Sheila's support of Janine Burke was more indirect. She was a tireless advocate for Janine's first book on Australian women artists, which was her Bible in the early years of collecting. And she gave copies to anyone who showed interest in women's art. So Sheila remains committed to supporting early stage artists as well as historical archival research through a project entitled Filling the Gap, Rediscovering Australia's Lost Women Artists from 1870 to 1960. Phase one, which looks at New South Wales and is headed up by Juliet Piers, is now complete. And the research we funded helped uncover over 400 professional women artists of whom only 10% were previously known. We believe that through projects like this and others we may initiate, we can help transform the history of Australian art and for generations to come. Sheila is now expanding our horizons across Australia and beyond to support, recognise and celebrate women artists. The legacy that Lady Sheila and John Sir James Crothers left is significant. There is much to do and many creative ideas to foster. We can support artists, projects and research in areas that other organisations can't, won't or just haven't. We can be a rallying point for the sector, and we can develop programs to call our institutions to account. And we hope that together, our many hands will make light work to create a world. The ideal is where art exhibitions, publishing and collections would include 50% women to reflect the world we live in. So that's the Sheila Foundation, a bit of background, but it's also my great pleasure to introduce to you Vicky McInnes as the uh, chair of today's discussion. Vicky is co-curator of Unfinished Business, the editor of Art in Australia, and is currently undertaking a PhD at the University of Melbourne, considering contemporary feminist art practice and the archive in Australia. McInnes is founder of Sarah Scout Presents and Spring 1883, and has curated numerous exhibitions nationally and internationally. Would you join in welcoming Vicky? Thank you, Angela. I'm also not quite as tall as Angela, so I'll just lower the mic, but hopefully not the tone. Um, thank you all very much for coming. I am also going to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, but I also wanted to acknowledge that sovereignty has never been ceded and it's something we really importantly need to um, remember at every moment where we gather on, um, on these lands. Um, Annika Christensen was going to be here this evening to introduce the exhibition a little to you tonight. She's unfortunately not very well. Uh, I'm sure most of you have uh, seen Unfinished Business or um, different moments of it. I'm, as Angela noted, one of the um, many curators involved with the project, along with Alvis Richardson, who will 
be speaking tonight. Um, it's been an incredible project to work on, as I'm sure you can imagine. When we first began talking about the exhibition, though, it was evident we could only represent a really small um, portion of the remarkable feminist practice and discourse that's being engaged in Australia currently, as well as um, elsewhere. The exhibition was really conceived as a starting point, however, and as a framework for the conversations, the discourse and the disputation that might take, um, that might evolve out of it and that we certainly hoped would evolve out of it, particularly as the unfinishedness of various feminist practices and discourses became very evident through our conversations and through the work that we were looking at. The positioning of the table in the centre of the exhibition was a very, um, came up very early in our conversations and the ways that it has been utilised and um, extended during the exhibition has been really gratifying. I'd like to thank Max and Annika and especially Annabelle, um, wherever she snuck off to, uh, for activating and um, energising that space. Um, and of course, all of the artists and activists and writers and thinkers and community groups who have participated in the, um, in the program and extended the feminist dialogue. Our panel discussion today um, is also an opportunity to think through some of the evolutions and the developments that have taken place over the last 40 years, which is the time frame that the exhibition has purported to consider. Um, I guess, however, we're really looking at the past to frame the present and to think about the future, and that's in terms of the exhibition and today's panel, which will travel back in time, but hopefully to, um, to look forward. As I've quoted Elizabeth Friedman in the small text I wrote in the catalogue, um, in the exhibition catalogue, we're interested in mining the present for the signs of undetonated energy in past revolutions. And um, rather than simply, uh, I guess, thinking nostalgically about those past uh, revolutions and those past moments, we're all keenly aware, of course, that feminism has historically been a potent platform for agitation, agency, and change, and this has scarcely been more apparent than in our present moment. That was evident when we first sat down around the table as a curatorium, which was in the immediate aftermath of the first Women's March actions in January last year, and it continued to be the case during the year. At each meeting, it seemed, there was a germane social, cultural or political feminist issue, whether it be the cruel numbers of Indigenous women in incarceration, the release of new figures about the appalling wage gap, the discrepancy in superannuation between men and women, another shocking incident of internet trolling of a feminist broadcaster, or another all too common example of systemic misogyny in Australian politics. These were the things that framed our conversations. Of course, the exhibition itself opened just as the Me Too movement was gathering momentum. And it certainly feels to me that we're living in a really significant, living through a significant moment of cultural change at the present. From a personal perspective, working on the exhibition allowed me to reflect on my own practice and to think about the ways that my own feminism 
might be extrapolated through, through a career in the visual arts, particularly of how feminist ways of working and thinking, or of thinking might transmit into feminist ways of working. Of course, the most obvious of these are collaborating, working across generations, they're mentoring younger women in our industry, but they also include working discursively and in non-hierarchical ways, and of course, keeping our eyes on the numbers, and all of these things will be, um, I guess, discussed and played out this evening. The issue of indigenous relationships to mainstream feminism has become very central, not only to the exhibition, but to my thinking. And it was during all of the conversations, as Elvis will attest, um, around the table as well. I'd like to acknowledge that tonight's panel is a pretty white, cisgendered group of women. Um, but I do hope that we'll be speaking over the next hour to some of the, I guess, the strategies and modalities that might be adopted whereby intervening into mainstream orthodoxies uh, can highlight, I guess, some of the, um, and make visible some of the traditionally invisible voices and narratives, and that might be through intervening in collections, in publications, and in archives. So, to introduce tonight's panel, Dr. Janine Burke. In the 1970s, Janine was the Foundation Art History Lecturer at the Victorian College of the Arts. And during that time, she wrote Australian Women Artists, 1840 to 1940, which remains a key text in, um, in Australian art history. I urge you all to um, have a look at it if you haven't already. She co-founded both the Women's Art Register and LIP, the Feminist Arts Journal. She's an art historian and a novelist, and her biographies on the Heidi Circle include Joy Hester, Australian Gothic, A Life of Albert Tucker, and The Heart and Garden, Sunday Read, and Heidi. Most recently, she curated the wonderful book on Kiffy Rubo, curating the 1970s with Helen Hughes. Following Janine will be Dr. Jacqueline Milner, who is the Associate Professor of Visual Arts, La Trobe University. Having until very recently been Associate Professor of Art History and Theory at Sydney College of the Arts, the University of Sydney. Jacqueline's books include Conceptual Beauty, Perspectives on Australian Contemporary Art, 2010, Australian Artists in the Contemporary Museum with Jennifer Barrett, 2014, Fashionable Art with Adam Getsky, 2015, and the just published and soon to be launched at ACCA next Saturday, I believe, Jacqueline, um, Contemporary Outtakes, co-edited with Catriona Moore. And she also convenes the research cluster Contemporary Art and Feminism and is currently writing a book on contemporary arts and feminism, another one with Catriona Moore. Elvis Richardson needs no introduction, but I will anyway. Um, Elvis is an artist and academic, and I'm sure known to you all as the founder of Countess, a blog and benchmarking report that has been publishing data on gender representation in Australian contemporary visual arts since 2008. Elvis has also initiated curatorial projects, including Death Be Kind with Claire Lamb, which ran in 2010 to 2011, and True Estate, which she established last year in collaboration with Angela Brophy, Bo Emmett, and Julie Davies, where she has just rushed from this afternoon. 
Gemma Weston is a writer and curator of the Crothers Collection, which we've just heard a tiny bit about from Angela and we'll hear more about from Gemma. It's the largest specialist collection of women's art and is based at the Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery at the University of Western Australia. Each of these remarkable women will speak for about 15 minutes and then we'll convene in the centre and open up to a more general conversation. So I'd like to welcome Janine Burke to the lectern. Wow, I'm so thrilled to be here, so honoured to be part of what I regard uh, as unfinished business as an extraordinary historic moment and signals a shift in the culture back towards the re-examination of art and culture by women. Oh, didn't know that was there. I must have done that unintentionally. Oh. So um, I'm very, very grateful to be here. It's just... Uh, completely wonderful. And I would also like to acknowledge the Aboriginal elders of this land, but I would like to acknowledge the women Aboriginal elders of this country and their culture and their, what they're giving us, whether we can see it or we can't, it's definitely there. Okay, let's go. Picture this. It's 1975. Am I like screaming at you? It sounds really loud to me. Is it? That's okay, okay. I'll scream at you. Picture this. It's 1975, and I'm in what is known as the Stacks at the National Gallery of Victoria. It's where those paintings not on view are stored. The Stacks are large mesh screens on rollers that can be pulled out one by one to see which works are hanging there. Then the screen is pushed back in and the next one pulled out. If the catalogue is accurate, it means you can find exactly what you're after. There's something a little bit sad about the stacks. The paintings there seem rather unloved. The rejects, not the officially regarded important works that are presented to public view, but often examples by lesser known artists. It is here I find the women. It's an irony. There are plenty of works by women artists in the National Gallery Victoria collection, but at that time, few had found their way to public appreciation. I'm searching for a painting by Jane Sutherland. Its title is Two Figures in a Field, circa 1890, and it's a mess. Not the painting itself, but its condition. It's hanging awry from its frame, so the old wood of the frame is rubbing directly against the canvas. The work itself is an exquisite study in light brushstrokes of blue, mauve and pink, depicting two women engaged in some sort of pursuit in the landscape, which involves the woman bent over, taking something from the earth before placing it, presumably, in the waiting apron of the other. Immediately, I love this painting. The brushstrokes show a sure command of form. Its palette is deliciously hued. It's by an artist whom scarcely anyone has ever heard of and who is clearly brilliant. I'm accompanied by a curator from Australian art who seems rather grumpy 
he has to spend his time being here with me as I make notes and take Polaroids of various works of interest. Kiffy Rubo, the director of the Ewing and George Payton Gallery at Melbourne University's Student Union Building, has commissioned me to curate an exhibition titled Australian Women Artists, 100 Years, 1840 to 1940. It will open later in 1975 at Melbourne University before beginning a national tour. I've just started my research, which will take me to state and regional galleries around Australia. It is from these rich caches I will draw the bulk of the exhibition. Of the 71 works in the show, 62 are from public collections. Indeed, 26 are from the NGV and 14 from the Art Gallery of New South Wales, with smaller contributions from the National Gallery of Australia, Queensland Art Gallery, Art Gallery of South Australia, Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery, as well as regional galleries, Castle Maine, Ballarat and Newcastle. So, given the number of works by historical women artists in Australian national collections, it puts paid to the notion that women are not adequately represented, were not bought or in other ways acquired. It's just that they are invisible, dispatched to the ranks of the stacks. They cleared the first hurdle, entering the collection, but fell at the second, gaining curatorial attention and public prominence with the attendant kudos of research and restoration. I wonder why the curator is so irritated with me. Is it because I'm not an official curator? with a full-time job in an art museum like him, <clears throat> but a freelancing 23-year-old employed by a gallery best known for its contemporary and experimental art. I don't have much of a track record. My only exhibition was co-curating a feminist art show with Kiffy at the Ewing and George Payton the previous year. He's making me feel like I don't have any right to be there, He's making me feel like I'm one of the paintings in the stacks. Lesser known, best ignored. I'm trying not to sound too excited about the Sutherland, but I tell him I would really like to include it. He looks glum. He points out it needs conservation, and I concur. I ask him how long that will take. Oh, months, he replies. The show opens in September, I say. He shakes his head, much longer than that. I gaze longingly at the painting. Are you sure? Couldn't it be fast-tracked somehow? It's such a significant work. He says no, and he means it. I will have to wait until 1977, when Francis Lindsay curates an exhibition titled Sutherland at the VCA Gallery, of which she is director. Jane's work is shown alongside works by her nieces Ruth Sutherland, also an artist, and Margaret Sutherland, a distinguished composer. It was Margaret who donated Jane's work to the NGV in 1972, when she was at the ripe old age of 87. Francis's research indicates the title of the work is The Mushroom Gatherers. Ah, so that's what they're doing in the landscape and it was likely shown at the Victorian Artists' Society 
1895. By then we know Jane Sutherland was the preeminent woman member of the Heidelberg School, that she had a studio which she shared with another talented landscape painter, Clara Southern. Here's Clara Southern's An Old Bee Farm, circa 1900, also in the NGV collection. Interestingly, another woman at work in the landscape, seen from a distance, her back turned to the viewer. Their studios were at Grosvenor Chambers in Collins Street, where Tom Roberts also had a studio. We know that Sutherland accompanied her male colleagues, including Roberts, Arthur Streeton and Frederick McCubbin, on outdoor painting trips around the Heidelberg area. That she was an accomplished painter and an assiduous student spending 14 long years at the National Gallery School. While I'd been knocked back on the mushroom gatherers, I discovered something else that was intriguing about the NGV's collection of women artists. While the first seven awards of the prestigious, highly competitive National Gallery of Victoria Travelling Scholarship, now the Keith and Elizabeth Murdoch Travelling Scholarship, went to men, in 1908, when Constance Jenkins won, she was one of a succession of nine women to take the coveted award between then and 1932. Tracing the winners of the scholarship was how I found Nancy Guest's arresting memory of a colour pattern. She won the scholarship in 1926 and presented this work to the NGV in 1931 under the terms of the scholarship. I also found Nancy living with her daughter out Box Hill Way. She was delightful but she suffered from Alzheimer's and she could not remember doing this painting. As Gillian Dwyer points out, L. Bernard Hall, director of the NGV and the Gallery School, systematised the award, which up until his arrival in 1892, was administered on an ad hoc basis. Hall was also keen to see women and men receive similar advantages. There were other ways for women to enter the NGV collection. This is Janet Cumbrae Smith's, Stuart, sorry, The Breton Oil Bottle from 1922. Taste has changed, but in her day, Janet Cumbrae Stewart was a well-known and highly regarded pastelist. She came third the year Constance Jenkins won the Travelling Scholarship. Janet Cumbrae Stewart exhibited as Cumbrae Stewart, perhaps a nod to the discrimination suffered by women artists exhibiting as women. The Breton oil bottle was purchased by the Felton Bequest in 1926. Alfred Felton, as Alison Inglis and John Pointer tell us, has long been recognised as the benefactor who transformed the collection of the National Gallery of Victoria. With his bequest, the gallery suddenly gained access to acquisitions funds greater than those of the National and Tate Galleries in London combined. And between 1904 and 19... And sorry, and 2004, more than 15 
1,000 items were purchased with an estimated value today of approximately $1.5 billion. Indeed, there are nine works by Cumbrae Stewart in the NGV collection. Five were bought by the Felton Bequest, while two were donated by Cumbrae Smith's lover, Miss Ardmore Farrington Belairs, known as Bill. I recall doing work on Cumbrae Stewart and finding the family did not think much of Bill. Southern's An Old Bee Farm was also purchased by the Felton Bequest in 1942, two years after Southern died. I must also to congratulate the NGV for having so much of its collection fully catalogued and online. Curating the show in 1975 meant spending a lot of time Australia-wide in the stacks. In some cases, the works were not ignored, merely resting, such as their spectacular collection of modernist women in the Art Gallery of New South Wales from the era between the wars, a treasure of Thea Proctors and Margaret Prestons, plus the sole remaining painting by Nora Simpson. This is her studio portrait, Chelsea, from 1915. Simpson was a fugitive but an influential figure who, after her journeys to London and Paris, helped to alert her fellow artists back in Sydney at Datilo Rubo's art school, such as Grace Cosington Smith, to the international impact of post-impressionism. Simpson returned to live in London and, after the birth of her first son in 1921, gave up painting. I viewed the Art Gallery of New South Wales collection with Daniel Thomas, surely a pioneer in the recognition of women's art, if ever there was one, and a great antidote to the grumpy curator at the NGV. Daniel's knowledge was freely shared and his taste was exemplary. I learnt masses from this generous man. In 1973, Daniel had organised the, rec uh, the retrospective of Grace Cosington Smith. Here is her interior with wardrobe mirror for 19, from 1955, which I selected for Australian women artists. That retrospective toured Australia and it knocked everybody's socks off because there had been no overview or broad appreciation of this great artist who had led a quiet but productive life with her sisters in Sydney's outer suburbs. Daniel gleaned many of the works from private collections because Cossington Smith at that point had not found her way into major national collections. I started this paper in the stacks and I'll finish there with two paintings I found at the Queensland Art Gallery. This is Vida Leigh's Monday Morning from 1912 and A.M.E. Bale's Leisure Moments from 1902. Both these commanding paintings are images of Im women involved with their work. Leigh showing the grind female domestic labour, women doing the Monday wash, while Leisure Moments captures a rare scene 
from a woman artist's studio. Maybe AME Bales, where the women are taking a break from painting. There's another thread which links these works. Both Leahy and Bale were students at the gallery school, not at the same time, but within a few years of each other around the turn of the 20th century. Due to the scale and subject matter of these works, both were probably painted to compete for the NGV Travelling Scholarship, which had set subjects such as leisure. Neither one, but the ambition of these women made for powerful statements. Indeed, reading their CVs is to witness the careers of two women who were active and successful in their local art worlds, Lai in Brisbane, Bale in Melbourne, raising money to buy artworks for state galleries, starting art groups, teaching, organising philanthropic bequests, belonging to influential art societies and continuing to exhibit. Lay was awarded an MBE for her services to art. This is a story with a happier ending, as the staff at the Queensland Art Gallery were prepared to have these paintings undergo restoration in time for their inclusion in Australian Women Artists in 1975. Today, these works hang on public display and they are popular. Thank you. Hi everybody, uh, thank you Annabelle for inviting me to be on the panel this afternoon, it's a great honour. Um, I wanted firstly to acknowledge that we, um, the traditional owners of the land and pay my respects to elders past and present and future. And I'm here um, in my capacity I guess as, a, as an arts writer and educator who's been practising for about 25 years from a feminist perspective, but also as the co-convener of contemporary art and feminism. Um, uh, we, and I just wanted to show you that we do have a, an active website. We also have an active Facebook page. So if you're interested in some of the things that I'm going to speak about today, about some of the activities that we've been mounting since uh, 2014, I'd refer you to this and to like us on our Facebook page and you, um, to be able to, to get notifications about our future events. So I think, yeah, I guess we, we can leave it there. Um, so... Um, there is no political power without control of the archive, to quote Jacques Derrida. And to quote Michel Foucault, the archive is no longer a monument for future memory, but a document for possible use. The archive carries an official air, evoking evidence, records, documents held by institutions that form the foundation of accepted histories. Indeed, the pioneering work of these thinkers that I've just quoted focused on narratives of institutional power as they expanded our understanding of archive beyond material records to the meanings or the discourses that they create. Now, the archive captures a key aspect of doing history differently, namely radical skepticism about linear time, for the archive insists on the contemporariness of the past and its infinite malleability.
It also begs the question as to what properly constitutes an archive or is deemed worthy of belonging to one, questions that are central to cultural value. Not surprisingly, therefore, the archive as a motif has become of keen interest to those seeking to craft alternative histories and to those interested in the relationship between material culture and social realities. This is natural terrain for feminist scholars and artists. Subtending this interest is also an etymological resonance. The word archive from the Greek translate to the house or the home of the archon or superior magistrate. At its core, we could argue then that the archive occupies the threshold between public and private, which is also a key feminist focus. Feminists have an eye for the invisible, a nose for the disguised. What is apparent is never taken at face value. We are driven to examine, analyze, and test its conditions of being, to look under the bed, to look in the garbage, quintessentially domestic places, even if the only traces that remain are immaterial. In these marginal spaces, one often finds flecks that illuminate the moment that they came into being more urgently and with greater authenticity than that which has survived official scrutiny as worthwhile. Mouldering cardboard boxes of ephemera in the back shed, personal memorabilia, old sketchbooks, diaries, catalogues, albums, speak not only of an individual's life, but also betray a zeitgeist, the underlying ideologies and cultural ideas of a particular time and place. The same, of course, applies to artefacts that were once overlooked for institutional anointing, which was, in fact, the topic of uh, uh, Janine's talk just now. Rich with story, they tell us not only about the prevailing values of a society, but can offer surprisingly fresh insights on the present. They feel out of time, both of this time and of the past. As literary theorist David Greetham has provocatively argued, and I quote, one ironic rule of thumb might very well be that the more culturally valuable or commercially popular an item might appear to be here and now, the less eligible it should be to become for conservation. But to retrieve and revalorize different stories and artifacts is more complicated than simply correcting the record or granting visibility to that which was previously under-recognized. It's part of a broader feminist strategy to craft a different ethics of knowledge and a different ethics of knowledge creation. One that affirms embodied experience, multiple perspectives, and the material quality of ideas. And just like selecting and officiating an archive, to curate is to create knowledge, not merely to represent, to publish or exhibit it, but to create it. And to create knowledge, of course, is to exercise power. And feminism is always interested in power. How and in whose interests it is wielded when it is disavowed, and how can it be redistributed? And feminism is always imagining how ideas, practices, and institutions that assert that they're value-free and immutable might be opened up to, the, to, to scrutiny and to change. As we know, the contemporary period has seen the rise of the curator's importance and visibility, part of a complex of developments that include the active deployment of visual arts towards the end of urban development and tourism, such as the Destination Museum, for example, and ever larger and more frequent arts festivals. As the audience for contemporary art has grown exponentially in recent years, so has the reach of the curator. 
the public's interaction with art now comes predominantly by way of the museum in its various forms, including the virtual, rather than through art historical literature. And such circumstances then heighten the need for socially responsible and responsive curating for curatorial approaches that not only seek to represent diverse experiences, but that help to create new realities. The emergence of social practice as a major form of contemporary art in the new millennium has also demanded the reconceptualization of curating as the artwork began to extend well beyond the confines of the museum and to consistently outgrow conventionally archival forms, so was the curator's focus redirected from the care of objects and the museum, uh, sorry, from the care of objects and the creation of narratives to the nurturing of relationships, relationships between artists, work with non-art artist makers, ma marginalized spaces and traditions and grassroots activists. And these relationships owe a great debt to their feminist forebears. What to some appeared out of nowhere as fully formed, for example, in the 1990s, the notion of relational aesthetics, um, coined by the French curator Nicolas Bourriot. This was arguably forged too many decades earlier, at least two decades earlier, by artists, curators, and writers fired up by feminist passions and informed by the feminist methods of collaboration, decentralization, and open-endedness. The flattening of power structures that characterize these methods was also played out in the emerging figure of the artist curator, who dissolved the division between museum professional and artist producer, and introduced a different set of values into the whole enterprise of making and displaying art. And for those of you who get a chance to maybe go to the Sydney Biennale, which has just opened um, this weekend, there is the work of one of these really important figures who comes from the American feminist tradition, that's Suzanne Lacey, who's really you know, only recently been really acknowledged for the pioneering work that she's done in this um, since the 1970s. The feminist principles and objectives underpinning art making, art writing, and the staging of exhibitions are focused on how knowledge is created and how ideas are transferred, and are hence necessarily related to pedagogical practices. This accent on how what we know can be transformed and transformative is integral to any cultural practice that calls itself political. Making connections between disparate, uh, disciplinary pursuits is also part of that politics a perspective that conceives of the social as an integrated whole. Such transdisciplinary thinking and action that takes on the gatekeepers, gatekeepers of dis disciplinary expertise is also a key feminist strategy. So I say those things, you know, tying together, I guess, notions and the history and meanings of archives um, with the history and meanings and practices of curation as a kind of context, I guess, for the work that, uh, that we've been doing with Contemporary Art and Feminism. Just to give you a little bit of a background, um, Contemporary Art and Feminism is a research cluster that um, we founded together with, um, and so I, at the time I was in Sydney College of the Arts, which is the visual arts faculty of Sydney University, uh, with my colleague Catriona Moore, who's in art history at Sydney University, and our colleague Joe Holder, who's the director of Cross Arts Projects, which is an independent art space in Sydney in the central uh, city, which is renowned for its really, really progressive um, uh, programming, particularly of indigenous women artists, um, and also for being like a hub of, uh, you know, a, a different kind of curating, I guess, that intersects really clearly with activist politics. 
so we founded that in 2000, at the end of 2013, and then for the next three and a half years, we rolled out a whole series of different projects that tried to kind of find ways of materially, rep, you know, bringing to life these concepts that I've, that I've spoken about. And, uh, and I'm very happy to say that vestiges of a couple of those, pro of those projects are actually in this exhibition, Unfinished Business, and I'll call your attention to them in a moment. Um, so in contemporary art and feminism, which was partly, you know, it was partly motivated also by the fact that Sydney College of the Arts um, did have somewhat of a reputation of a sort of uh, a den of toxic masculinity. It was um, actually really important. It was really important as a strategy to sort of fly the red flag and to act as a, as a kind of lightning rod for those students and scholars and artists and practitioners who actually were undertaking feminist work, but in a sense had either been discouraged from identifying with that term because it was thought to kind of ghettoize their practice. And, um, uh, but it, 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 we were hoping, I guess, in a kind of, yeah, in, in a kind of small way to provide a safe, a safe place for that sort of uh, work and those sorts of ideas. And we tried to run the Contemporary Art and Feminism Research Cluster as a very organic and open space. So most of the, the things that we came up with, the projects that I'll discuss a, a couple of them with you now, um, came out of, you know, kind of rumbunctious, rambling discussions. Uh, we used to meet at Cross Arts Projects, which is quite a central venue. And we invited anybody who wanted to come along, basically. So when we founded the research cluster, we put out a call just basically inviting anybody who, who was working in this way or interested in these ideas to, to contact us and come and share their ideas and talk. Um, and, and that's how our program came into being. Uh, we were interested in exploring that relationship between feminism, the archive, and curating, and in, in testing received truths, in developing feminist methods, uncovering alternative stories, and exploring different ways of being, different ways of seeing. One of our first projects was Curating Feminism, which was a, yeah, a kind of network of different things, including a, a more kind of formal curated exhibition, but also conferences. We also had two international curators come out and do masterclasses for anybody who wanted to subscribe. And we did it uh, all for free. Okay, we had, we, on the smell of an oily rag, uh, but we did have a little bit of funding, and so we were, we were very, um, you know, absolutely insistent that all these events should be, you know, without having to pay. Um, and Curating Feminism was our, that, that first project in 2014. And one of the things we were trying to explore, different ways of curating, so how might you actually, for example, you know, try to even up the power relationship that usually is between a curator who's kind of institutionally backed and then the artist, you know. And so one of the things that we said, okay, well, let's try to match one curator with one artist. So that was one of the things that we, that we did. The other thing that we did, and we did actually have access at the time to these beautiful spaces at Sydney College of the Arts, some of you may be familiar with. They're in, you know, in heritage buildings from uh, the 19th century that were once, you know, a variety of uses, including a mental institution, but they are beautiful sandstone buildings, and we just recently accessed this wing of Callan Park, which is the name of uh, that, uh, that complex, which is on the water uh, in Sydney. Uh, we just accessed these buildings, and they were just yeah, incredibly redolent, you know, like just with that patina of age, cathedral-like ceilings, you know, 
pretty scrappy but beautiful. And so we were able to actually offer those spaces to this, these uh, pairs of curators and artists. So another one of the principles that we wanted to observe was that um, the artists and the curators were able to get in there quite ahead of time. So it's not just the install. It's like, you know, three, three weeks before to actually be in the space, experiment in the space, have those conversations, and also open that up for uh, particularly students to be able to come in and, and observe that process and engage in that conversation. So the work really becomes, you know, has that process orientation. Um, and the other thing that we, that we did, uh, we, we um, incorporated a Wikipedia editathon as well as, as part of curating uh, feminism, which we continued. And that was, again, a sort of addressing those issues that I mentioned earlier that also pertain to what Janine spoke about, those gaps in the archive. So to actually tool people up to edit Wikipedia <laughs> and to insert, therefore, those histories that had been completely neglected. And you probably know the stats around how many women uh, edit uh, and write and contribute to Wikipedia. It's less than 10%. So, um, in other words, this is about, it's that, you know, that old adage about teaching someone how to fish rather than giving them the fish <laughs> and distributing, therefore, that power and, that, uh, and the agency to actually change that archive. Um, Okay. Yeah, and then uh, in 2015, we staged uh, one of our next projects, which is called Future Feminist Archive. And that began actually in a much, with a much more historical focus because it began with discussions around how best to pay tribute to and continue the work of the 1995 National Women's Art Exhibition, which was coordinated by the late feminist art historian Joan Kerr, an event that saw exhibitions by female artists staged throughout Australia for the course of the year, marking the 20th anniversary of International Women's Year. So that, that was a wonderful, I and mean, I do remember that actually, <laughs> um, as, as a viewer and as a, as a very sort of marginal participant. But it was an exceptional, it was an exceptional experience, wasn't it, to see, you know, um, state museums, uh, you know, contemporary art spaces, art-run spaces, regional galleries and so on to show women's work. Um, and so we, uh, we wanted to do something in tribute to that. We actually tried, you know, meagre resources, admittedly, to, tr to get something like that happening. And, uh, and we had to sort of like reorient it because we just didn't have either the lead in time or the resources to actually mount something like that. That originally, original project by Joan Kerr had actually been funded at a quite a high level by government um, research funding. So we didn't have that. So we kind of reoriented. And one of the things that we, that we really were interested in is, you know, again, that sense of distribution, redistribution of knowledge. And so we decided to focus on regional um, New South Wales. And uh, Joe Holder in particular was in charge of this to um, invite expressions of interest from artists who wanted to work with long mouldering archives in regional places. So some of them were regional um, galleries, but some of them were social history archives, in fact. And so artists went out to those, spent you know, many weeks at times or several visits working with those archives, speaking to com with community. And one of the things that we, we were interested in is exploring how can you communicate that? I'm not sure whether we really hit the target. Um, but one of the ways that, uh, that we uh, explored was to, to task the artists to actually come up with a poster. 
Uh, the poster, of course, having a long tradition, you know, in activist politics and a very redolent kind of form. Uh, and so the artist, together with the, the archive, uh, the, the community affiliated with the archive, actually created a set of posters, and those are the ones that you actually see here in Unfinished Business. So, and I will say, like I said, I'm not sure whether we hit it exactly, um, <laughs> because it's obviously very difficult to actually summarise, you know, the richness of experience, the time, you know, the many different energies and intelligences that go to a project like that in a poster. Yeah, I'm getting the wind-up. <laughs> Um, okay, so that's Future Feminist Archive. And the last one I just wanted to mention is um, Femflix, uh, which is a project that we staged in 2016. Femflix, Feminist Screen Culture from the 1990s, which uh, a selection of which is actually screening here as part of the film project in the, in the little black box here. And in that instance, the thing that really drove us again, you know, to go back to the idea of kind of, of, of rebutting what a received or conventional wisdom is that there is a received or conventional wisdom that the 90s was the decade of feminist backlash. And I lived in the 90s and for me it wasn't a time of feminist backlash. Feminist backlash all the time. <laughs> But at the same time, there's an amazing kind of, uh, you know, feminist cultural uh, practices that actually emerged during that time because it was a time that actually came on the back of, you know, the 1988, that sort of explosion of Indigenous writing and art practices leading up to, to um, uh, 1988. And so you have the emergence of really interesting indigenous writing, indigenous art at that time. You also have the emergence of cyber culture, you know, and cyber feminism during that time, uh, the emergence of queer, you know, really interesting queer theories. So we actually did a lot of archival research to put this film program together, uh, Femflix. And I did want to mention, just in terms of archival research, that of course many of those films you, you can imagine from the 90s were on these redundant um, platforms, you know, like VHS, for instance, you know. And so some of them were mouldering those archives, have never having been seen for years and years and years. And one of the things that our project was able to do was actually, like, you know, revisit these works for some of those filmmakers and actually transfer them to digital so that we were able to screen them and now, the, the, you know, the makers are able to have them on a digital platform. Um, and just while I wind up here, so I have recently moved from Sydney University, as you, if you were listening to, the, um, to my introduction, so now I'm actually at La Trobe University. And so CAF is no longer based at Sydney College of the Arts, but it's extended into regional Victoria, <laughs> which I think is really exciting. Um, and uh, we have an, a number of projects planned, and, um, but one of the things that did come out of CAF through those three years is a series of writings. So this one was mentioned at the beginning, which is uh, an anthology that actually has um, contributions from a whole range of different writers um, and artists who were part of that CAF community or an ex extended sort of members of that CAF community. Um, it's just come out from Routledge next week at two o'clock in this very room. We're going to launch it. Uh, I'd really encourage you to come along. And if you're interested, like I said, look at the website, Facebook, and um, thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'd, I'd like to um, uh, pay my respects to the traditional owners of the land and um, that we meet on here today. And um, yes, so thank you. Also to Aka to, for having us here today yeah, and that feminist show and everything. 
Okay, I don't have a script, sorry. I've, I've been giving a lot of countess talks, so I was like, oh yeah, I'll just, I know my story and everything. So we'll see how I go, and I hope it's not embarrassing. But Okay, so I've got a bunch of slides. I'm just gonna kind of um, come up with the things about them. Um, so yeah, here we have countess. As you can see, when I made countess, like part of the fun of it was you know noticing that cunt was in the logo and that I could kind of run with that. Because I guess to bring things up and to kind of point out, you know, problems or whatever, you know, you were considered a bitch or you have a problem or it's, you know, all that kind of thing. So I thought, yeah, I've got a problem. I'll just put it right out there. And um, and then, yeah, it was kind of fun that it, I could have put a cent and a dollar sign on there as well. You know, really kind of dragged in the metaphors, to, um, you know, because there were so many issues, I guess. Um, and I, I started counter started Countess because of conversations I was having with my peers, um, women artists, and um, <clears throat> and I think also a little bit from the experience that I ha had when I had studied overseas. So at 34, I got a Sam Stagg scholarship and went to um, Columbia University and did my MFA in New York. It was like, oh, wow, what an opportunity. Oh, my God, I've just lived happily ever after after that. One of the things I um, that was immediately apparent when I got there was that uh, they actually do an intake of 50-50 gender, kind of like they have 50-50, which was kind of interesting. And, um, you know, it was noticeable to me. And then, I mean, like through that process and then leaving, you know, after studying there for two years and being kind of um, involved in the next intake and blah, blah, blah. Um, I guess all those things just kind of like, you know, as artists, we're not necessarily out there writing essays or kind of creating arguments, but you just notice, right? And um, and then I had a job and I was catching a train. I used to buy uh, the magazines, art magazines, and I'd look through them. And, of course, art magazines are just full of people's names. And, um, and you know, we have... And that was when I kind of started counting representation because I was... I guess it was that kind of knock-on effect of like, okay, well, they, these master's programs are like, you know, that's a big deal, and if they're doing them all 50-50, or they were at Columbia, it kind of seemed to show, you know, um, a bit of leadership in that area. And then, but then what happened afterwards, I guess, even in that situation, I noticed a lot of the guys were getting opportunities and success, but the women weren't so much. Um, okay, just to look at this slide. Um, yeah, you can see some web addresses there for the blog and the Countess Report. And the new Countess Report, which is being launched, launched this year, um, I'm no longer running Countess, and there's a young group of women who have taken it over, and um, they're going to launch a new site and do lots of activities, and I hope they're actually giving a workshop here tomorrow, and um, they're really amazing. So, um, yeah, that's great. They're called the Countess, just called Countess.Report. Okay. I've got a couple of slides, so I'll go through them. Oh, that way. Oh, that way. Okay. Um, <laughs> and I guess, like, when you kind of, like, are eagerly a young artist and you're making stuff and, um, you know, and you want, you're ambitious, you want to do things and you want it to have an impact and you want to be chosen... You know, one of Raquel O'Mella's works I always liked were called Pick Me, Pick Me. <laughs> um, yeah, so this kind of idea of, um, you know, the lucky few, the you know, most of us, and then, you know, the resentful ones, I guess, I kind of... Um, 
Ja. Um, <laughs> also a sense of expectation or what, you know, what was in store and feeling like lots of disappointment. I mean, like I've overheard, I mean, I've walked down 24th Street with a very well-known successful artist who was claiming that, complaining that her gallery wasn't on 23rd Street. So, you know, it's all kind of relative, um, you know, what you feel you have access to and how you feel you can fit in and what your opportunity, you know, are who, you know. We all just want to kind of get by. Um, I've included some of my own works in here today just to kind of, because I was looking for things and I realised oh, I actually have made quite a few works about uh, this issue. I just didn't realise they were so prominent because in a way I had a bit of, you know, it was difficult like to do the Countess thing so I just started doing that anonymously at a time when things were a little bit anonymous, like the Gorilla Girls were anonymous. Other blogs that were coming out at the time, like doing reviews and stuff, they were all anonymous. And anonymous is fun because, you know, <laughs> you can say what you want and it was really good. But as Virginia Woolf said, anonymous was probably a female um, doing all the work, never getting the credit. And yet we're in this business where it's all about your name and what you do and your exposure and like those economies of exposure that you get paid in. And I came out as Countess. <laughs> Um, but I actually did it at an art school talk because I thought, oh, I really want to tell the students about this problem and prepare them for the future instead of, you know, in a way, whitewashing the situation. You know, so one of the, you know, this work is called Important Art. Important Artist, um, it's Important Art. And it's just anagrams of the word Important Artist. And so it came up with these lovely stories. One of them was... Um, these two here, and, and I did the works with uh, smoke on paper, kind of like thinking about smoke and mirrors and kind of illusions and things like that. <laughs> this work is in the show, it's just out the front there. Um, I think magazines have played a big part in how we consume art. I guess the internet does a lot now too. Um, you know, yeah, but you'd kind of get the, mag it was... Yeah, I don't know. Magazines, it's like where I guess I collect a lot of old art magazines and I love going through art, old art magazines, like looking at what happened to these artists. You know, where did they go? Like all of them, like a few of them you know. But anyway, so the idea, this is a collaborative work with artist Virginia Fraser and um, it was like an idea to create a magazine with stories that we would want to read and, um, and kind of make fun of you know, different art world things. And this was, and we put ourselves on the cover, that's me on the cover on the right there. And I liked kind of, you know, asking, you know, this thing like, am I a career feminist? You know, I'll just use feminism to kind of like rise to the top or whatever. Um, and, you know, why not? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just joking. I'm very tongue in cheek and I'm very sarcastic. And I don't know. maybe I hope it comes across. My talk's going to be really quick, I think. Um, and here's one out of magazines. I'm also, yeah, so these trophy kind of monumental shapes, and it, this is about Art in Australia magazine. It took three issues of Art in Australia when I cut out all the men's names to fill that shape. And then the same size shape, it took ten issues to fill it with women. Um, yeah. So kind of like coming up with ideas for data visualisation, I suppose, or like how you could kind of communicate, 
you know, the loss. Like, because in a way, when I look at those, I kind of see all these men's names, lots of diversity, lots of kind of things going on. And when you, with the women, you kind of tended to actually see the same women again and again as well. It was like a small group that got repeated, um, which I thought was also interesting. Um, and then I guess the other conclusion is to think, well, the problem's me. <laughs> Um, have I got an art problem? And, um, and, you know, I came up with this work, which was a, a questionnaire about to see if you had a problem, gambling problem, that I participated in and they would call me every six months and ask me a bunch of questions and I kind of got the questionnaire and these were some of the questions. Um, and I thought, well, yeah, if they were asking me about art, I could... I'd be scoring off the charts, like I'd be a problem artist, like not a problem gambler, but maybe it's the same thing. And um, and also kind of it also the idea of it also plays into, you know, again kind of smoke and mirrors and kind of seducing people into a life of being an artist and the sacrifices that you kind of make and stuff and um, and, you know, it doesn't always go well and you do feel kind of like, oh, my God, do I just keep doing this? Like, <laughs> what's going on? Um, what do I want out of this? And, um, you know, and I mean, I guess these are just things like as women we all feel, but in, a, in many ways, you know, I have to admit to myself, like, you just weren't allowed to express it or something, like to be ambitious, to want to be, you know, whatever. Um, and, like, to have to deal with that over many years while your male colleagues are representing Venice at the b and or something like that makes it sound like I'm... Anyway. Oh. I really love this artist's work, Maria and Wanda, um, and this particular thing. And it reminds me when um, Jacqueline was talking about the archive, how, you know, I'm really bad at this myself, but... Um, you know, it is about history and how people access history and, like, you know, what we're doing now, how to kind of, you know, put it in places where people can access it in the future and to take ourselves seriously and kind of, like, what we're doing is important and um, it won't go... Uh, we won't go down in history, you know, if we don't make active efforts to create archives and do those things and, um, yeah. Ooh. Keeps changing. Well, I thought I'd throw some um, stats in here because, you know, I always love the numbers and, like, you know, it was really looking at data. I mean, like, one of the things with Countess was, um, I, you know, I never wanted to, you know, set out to become an expert on feminist art or, you know, feminism or whatever. You know, I just kind of saw it as a way to kind of, you know, give the finger or something, I suppose. So, collecting the data, but it was fun because data is, you know, corporate and, um, you know, it's about that kind of world. It's like talking back in their language kind of thing. It's unemotional and, you know, straightforward and it doesn't lie. I mean, everyone says you can twist the numbers around, but these are pretty simple numbers, you know, like how many people are in a show. <clears throat> okay, I'll talk in the next slide about gender identity, but uh, just draw your attention to, okay, we're looking at statistics that I tried to put together today. I'm not sure if it's communicating well. We'll see. The Venice Biennale and the Australian Pavilion at the Venice Biennale from, since 1958, <clears throat> which is when Ven um, Australia joined, 
And um, as you can see, the first pie chart is um, you know, how many men and women over that time. The second pie chart is like how many men and women were in solo or group shows. Um, often, you know, when I've counted exhibitions and stuff, you know, you could, if you just counted everyone as if they were evenly represented in the gallery um, as opposed to the floor space of a solo show as one as a group artist. And, you know, I guess looking at all those things for a long time kind of made me, you know, kind of aware of, um, oh, yeah, you know, you know, that whole kind of solo thing and the genius artist, you know, the single kind of figure who's brilliant or whatever you know, may seem that way from the outside, but really a lot of people had to support them and whatever for them to get to that, to that place. Um, and, you know, in unison <laughs> as well. Um, one of the things, you know, I do whenever I go and look at galleries and I'm kind of trying to count numbers or whatever, is I always try to kind of bring out the women's names, like, you know, so we see them again and again. I notice repetition. You know, that's really good. It makes you remember the artist. I was sharing a story with Janine before we started today about, you know, when I first started Countess, like trying to go, oh, well, if you don't have Sean Gladwell, what's the equivalent female artist or something? And you'd be racking your mind. And it's because we hear men's artists' names all the time. Like, they're the ones that come to mind. So, you know, it's like, let's repeat women's names and, um, you know, da da so as you can see, Venice Biennale, the first woman um, was 1982, after Australia started in 1958, so that took 30 years. Another 10 years, and then we had Jenny Watson, and, and then another, what are we, five years later, a group show of um, the first Indigenous artists, I believe, or maybe Rover Thomas might have been before then, actually, I think he was, um, to show at Venice and represent Australia. And you'll notice, like, since 2001, like, the, I think the last five artists have all been women at Venice. It's kind of interesting. Um, let's have a look. This is kind of badly put together. But what I'm trying to do here on the left is um, one thing I noticed because, you know, as artists, it's like all of our biographical details are out on the internet, like when you're born, where you're born, where you currently lived, where you went to school, where you're going. I mean, like practically your address and your phone number. <laughs> I mean, you never find that about curators online, funnily enough. But um, And you also know how old the artists are. It's like when I used to read, you know, women's magazines and they'd have, like, you know, Farrah Fawcett in brackets 32. You know what I mean? Like always telling you people's ages. They do it with actors a lot too. Um, yeah, it's very important your age when you're an artist, um, it would appear. <laughs> um, okay, so one of the things the Venice, I mean, this is just one little sample of data, but the Venice statistics showed me, as I could see, you know, I could find out when all the artists were born, how old they were when they went to Venice, that, you know, more than half the men went to Venice, you know, under the age of 40, launching their international careers, one might suspect. And, um, you know, the majority of the women went to Venice, like, in their 50s and 60s, obviously at the end of, you know, <laughs> their careers or what have you. And also, you know, if you want to add that in numbers, it's like 15 years difference. Women have to work for 15 years longer in the arts to, you know, get the same kind of reward. But look, I can make that general assumption, but as I said, you know, the last couple of, what, five, six years have been women representing Australia um, at the Venice Biennale. 
And it's a good, I mean, I like looking at the ones like, you know, the closer, whenever I did counting, the closer you got to power, the more likely, you know, it was to be men in that kind of position. Like even when, um, you know, looking at indigenous artists as well, like most of the museum kind of large indigenous artists at particular periods of time have been men. Um, and the Women of Colour was, I can't remember if that was the name of the exhibition that was just on at the NGV, kind of like put that show together to kind of redress that balance as well. Um, okay. Oh, I had the little, how am I going on time? Oh, okay. Um, I had the, oh, sorry, it's just going the other way. Oh, maybe I'll go there. Oh. I had those um, like name plaques up there just to kind of, you know, I don't know, this whole idea of artist names and all our information and what have you. And um, also to, um, you know, this is one of the things the new, the, the women who are running the Countess Report now are, are kind of formulating ideas and strategies around. Like when I was counting, um, gender, I was kind of going on, um, you know, gendered names in our cultures, do you know what I mean? So, like, okay, my name's Elvis, I changed my name to Elvis so people would think I was a boy on paper, right? When I was 19, <laughs> said, call me Elvis, okay. It's like calling yourself Jesus or something. Obviously, I was very ambitious then as well. <laughs> anyway, um, so yeah, I had, I've even had experiences myself where my work has been reviewed and they thought I was a guy and it's always been interesting in those situations because they kind of talk my work up a lot more. Like, <laughs> but when I'm a girl, it's like, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, anyway, interesting. Um, yeah, okay, so just getting back, wrapping up uh, this idea of, you know, the feminist show and, you know, we have focused a lot on, you know, quite overt feminist kind of, art practices and motifs and things like that. But, um, you know, when I first started The Countess, I was actually really inspired by a bunch of shows that were happening internationally. It was around 2007. Um, there was WAC um, feminist revolutions in Los Angeles. There was, I'm going to forget all the names now, um, global feminisms in New York, there was Elle's in Paris, there was a bunch of other ones, and they were all kind of happening around that time. And like, that question always comes up with all women's shows as if like, you know, oh, you're gonna be ghettoized, and you're not in the, well, I don't, I don't really care. Like, I was excited, that's what I wanna see. Um, I couldn't, yeah, anyway, so that was my message with that, and this kind of idea, like, you know, come out with a visual for that, like, it's like, well, yeah, we see more women, it's not such a big deal, but when it happens, like, once a decade or whatever, it's a huge deal, and it felt a bit like that, putting this together, I think a lot of people were very, you know, keen for, and then this was another kind of take on that, you know, um, yeah, so I'll just let you read that one. I think that's all I can say. Thank you. <laughs> I'm gonna lower this a bit. Can everyone hear me? Yes. Wow, the pressure of going, pressure of being last. 
Um, I'd also like to pay my respects to the traditional owners of this unceded land and also to offer my greetings from Wajak Noongar country on the West Coast or as we colloquially say, g'day from WA. Um, thanks for having me uh, here today. Um, I do have a bit of a slideshow, but I can just kind of start talking without it, um, I guess. Um, today I'm actually going to talk fairly practically and, in, and also quite informally about the um, about the Crothers Collection of Women's Art at the University of WA, what it is, and also some of the ways that it is shaped by and also shapes the institution that it occupies. Um, and I will make this d the distinction before I start that, and it's probably an interesting and kind of pedantic uh, qualification that we can maybe get to in the questions, that although it, we are talking today about feminist art, the collection of uh, the, the CCWA, as it's... Um, Short in its shortened form, isn't necessarily a collection of feminist art. It's a collection of women's art, although I do see it as an inherently uh, feminist project. Um, although you could also argue that as a woman or a female-identifying person making an artwork under patriarchy, that every artwork you make is a feminist artwork, but that's also perhaps something that we can get to in, in questions. Um, so the collection in its uh, current form uh, uh, at the University of WA is roughly 700 works, uh, ranging from 1890 to about 2015, uh, mostly in a range of media, but mostly concentrated on uh, domestically scaled, uh, I suppose, paintings and works on paper, which is uh, due to its origin, which is a, as, a, as a private collection, as Angela foregrounded, uh, began by two West Australian philanthropists, Sir James and Lady Sheila Crothers, who are pictured here in their Mosman Park home with some very, uh, some rather iconic uh, Crothers collection works, uh, mostly early modernist uh, portraits and um, still lives and landscapes. Uh, so the Crothers family started building their collection about 1975, and they were interested in women's art from the from the origin of their of their collecting. Although they did collect both men, uh, art by both men and women, they made the decision to focus uh, specifically on women's art after Joan Kerr and Joe Holder's National Women's Art Exhibition of 1995, when what, what they referred to as the women's portion of the collection, so roughly 120 works at that stage, were shown at the, the Perth Institute of Contemporary, art, uh, Contemporary Arts. Sorry. Um, and after that, they made, uh, realising the strength of this collection that they had developed, they focused specifically on collecting women's art, sold off a lot of their very uh, high-profile um, landscapes by Fred Williams and et cetera, to focus, to, to, to buy uh, works uh, by women with the intent of donating them to a public institution. So at the time that they signed uh, a deed of gift and bailment with the University of Western Australia in, uh, in 2007, so we've just celebrated 10 years with the university, uh, the collection numbered about 400, uh, 400 artworks. Um, because it's a private collection, uh, and I say domestically scaled, it was for a number of years it was stored in their Mosman Park home, in their garage and on display in their, in their living room. So they, there were certain restrictions, I suppose, on what they could collect based on those, those limitations. Uh, also, the, the Crothers, uh, and by the Crothers, so Sir James and Lady Sheila. So James is a philanthropist. Um, he was a, kind of a media mogul. He started Channel 7 in Perth. He worked in the 1980s as Rupert Murdoch's right-hand right man in New York as well. So they built the collection with their son, John, who's an art consultant, John Crothers. And the Crothers also have a daughter, Dr. Sue Crothers, who was until recently part of the Crothers Art Foundation. 
So they focused, uh, because it's a private collection, there are some limitations, but they are also kind of free of, a, of a, I suppose, an institutional acquisition policy to focus on artworks that they liked. And they really came to collecting with, uh, as, as, as I suppose, newbies. They were learning to appreciate art as John was studying at university. So it was a real kind of family activity that they did together. And so they bought based a lot on personal taste uh, and also on particular themes that they were interested in. Probably the most well-known of these is self-portraiture. So you can see here uh, the display is uh, in their home is a, a method that Sheila referred to as the artist and her work. So they would collect a self-portrait and then a non-self-portrait and then hang them um, alongside each other uh, in, the, in the home. Uh, I'll talk a little bit more about the themes, the themes later on. So in 2007, the collection is gifted in to the university. This is a, there was an exhibition in 2012, Look, Look Again, that showcased roughly uh, 120 of those 400 works uh, in the full Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery at UWA. You can see this exhibition replicates some of that, the, the, the kind of domestic uh, hang, the artist and her work, this portrait in, in the middle this uh, selection of portraits uh, in, the, in the center of the gallery. So to give you, I suppose, a little bit about the, of context about the institution that it occupies, um, the uh, collection is one of three at Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery. It is uh, the other two being, um, I just realized the, the folly of trying to use my notes on my phone, because my phone's just refreshed itself. Just give me a second. Uh, the peril of being a millennial. Relying too much on the technology. Okay, I'm back. Um, so the, uh, there's three collections at UWA that make up the cultural precinct. Uh, the UWA Art Collection, a more traditionally Australian art collection uh, built around modernists like Sidney Nolan and Arthur Boyd. And also the Burnt Museum Collection, which is a really substantial and important collection of Aboriginal art and cultures, art and cultural material, but also uh, field notebooks, uh, recordings, photographs, um, and, and, a, and an archive that was put together by uh, anthropologists Catherine and Ronald Burnt, who worked with, began to work with Aboriginal communities in the in the 1940s. So the Yirrkala drawings that took to it recently are part of the the Burnt Museum collection. These three collections share uh, space at Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery, uh, and which was built a purpose-built building for the the university art collection, but has since been retrofitted to accommodate these. Um, these other, uh, the needs of these other collections. Just to give you a sense of scale, the UWA Art Collection is about 3,500 3, works compared to the Crothers 700, and the Burnt Museum's database has over 35,000 listings, and that includes the archives, photographs, everything. So that's very, um, it's, it's an enormous and very complicated uh, collection. So both the Burnt and the Crothers uh, have devoted gallery spaces within Lawrence Wilson. This is the what's known as the Lady Sheila Crothers Gallery. Uh, this is an installation view of uh, an exhibition. So we present an exhibition program from the collection roughly between two and four shows a year, depending on other requirements. Uh, this is an exhibition called Glitter, uh, juxtaposing the works of uh, Pat Lada and La Perouse uh, shell, uh, shell work artist Lola Ryan in 2014, kind of looking at the, the, the similarities in form between those, between those artists, but also the way that uh, those artists have been approached or in a lot of ways ignored by uh, collecting institutions in favour of the kind of the, the, the men that they're in cl close proximity to. Just to give you a sense of the gallery uh, scale, this is, this is, 
this is. Uh, it's a, actually a wing of the, 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 the cruciform of the, of the gallery. So it's about 11 by 6 metres in total. It's not large. Um, so this is an exhibition of the full 95 uh, um, pieces of Kelly Dolly's Things Learned About Feminism, which you see in the, this is uh, about 46 or 47. It's displayed in two parts and it rotates in unfinished business over the course of the, the exhibition. Um, so even though it's not a large collection, it uh, is probably one of the, mo is the most visible within the university. The UWA collection isn't exhibited that often. The main spaces are often devoted to, um, to other uh, curatorial projects. Um, so there's um, this program of, um, hang on, sorry. Um, I suppose what I wanted to talk a little bit about is some, as I said, some of the, the kind of institutional structures that shape the way that I can, uh, I can use the collection or the way that the collection is engaged with by the general public. Uh, the collection does continue to expand through exhibitions, but there's, uh, through acquisition, sorry, but there is certain limitations, one of them being size. I'm sure anyone that works in an institution knows the premium that collections require of space, that collections require. Uh, so. But it's really vitally important to me that the collection engages with living artists and is able to support living artists. And also that uh, contemporary artists, so, so women working now, are able to respond to and, I suppose, uh, uh, put the collection under some kind of scrutiny. So I've been able to direct a portion of my acquisition budget towards uh, exhibition-specific or site-specific commissions. Uh, so this is uh, a view of, uh, you'll see as well, we luckily a couple of years ago replaced the carpet in Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery with a, with a much more kind of contemporary flooring. It's called Bolon. I don't, it's, that's a whole, it's a whole other story. But someone in Western Australia thought that the carpet was a great idea. The art gallery has it in the 1980s. It's this sort of wool grey thing. It's not great, but here it is. Uh, the... <laughs> So this is um, documentation of a, a, a painting installation by Shannon Lyons, who actually works here at ACCA now, uh, um, in response to an exhibition called Object Lessons uh, 1, which is a series of three exhibitions looking at the contemporary kind of portion of the collection. And the way that painting, I suppose, has been used as a sort of a, a medium for social critique and also as a, as a kind of social uh, relational practice, for lack of a better word. So Shannon created this mural. These are hand-painted um, uh, stripes based on uh, painter's tape, so a medium that's often used in the installation of, of artwork, but um, it maintains its sort of invisibility. Shannon's very interested in gallery infrastructure. Shannon is also now also in possession of a portion of the Lawrence Wilson Art Gallery carpet, which is used in a series of other installations. She's really obsessed by, by it for... Some, some reason, that aside. Uh, so there's uh, this way you can, uh, there's also a, a fairly, I suppose, depressed, um, a, no, a limited number of opportunities for early career artists at the moment in Western Australia. Most artists of, of my generation exhibit outside of, of, of Western Australia. We had a series of, of commercial galleries closed from 2012 to th 2016. So this is a really a way of sort of inviting and supporting uh, our younger uh, artists and, and providing them with a sort of an institutional kind of context to, to work in. So just another example, this is a, a, the exhibition that opened recently, uh, Flora, which is a, a fairly, I suppose, traditional uh, exhibition of paintings that I'll describe as floral adjacent. So it's a really key strength of the, the Crothers collection is still lives and other works that feature of, uh, floral mo motifs. Um, for this exhibition, I, uh, I invited uh, the artist um, Mae Swan Lim, who's a musician as, as well as a kind of working across uh, 
she's in a, a number of bands, but is also a visual artist. May was quite involved in the, uh, as a lot of artists in WA were, in the protests around the, the Bielia wetlands. Uh, the, the Liberal government, Colin Barnett, Colin Barnett's Liberal government decided to put a highway through a significant um, ecological and uh, cultural for the, for the Noongar people site in southern Perth uh, and started bulldozing about six weeks before the government lost an election. So there was a huge and really kind of traumatic series of protests that happened around this, uh, this, this site. Uh, May started making uh, field recordings of uh, Bilia, but also a number of other ur urban wetlands. Perth is built on a series of swamps that were drained in the early, during the early early colonisation, to, to, and the city was built on top of them. So these uh, this work, yeah, there's um, sky uh, sky work and groundwork, two different sky piece and ground piece. I've actually forgotten the title of this work. That's terrible. Um, but different, so different birds and frog sounds, this sort of soundtrack. So you have this, uh, it, it was sort of an interesting way of positioning these uh, relatively, these kind of abstractions of, of, of flowers into the kind of the, the, the physical context of, um, of, of place in, in WA. Um, Something else that I've been able to do and that I'm quite interested in doing more in future is inviting artists in to respond to the work, uh, to, to the collection in more of, I suppose, uh, uh, an open-ended and um, so, uh, kind of practice-based uh, way. Teela George, who's an artist, a uh, West Australian artist as, as well, uh, came and did a series of kind of ma uh, material research about the collection. So we facilitated access to the collection database and the storeroom for her. She made a series of drawings and um, uh, kind of landed on these fairly oblique works that were exhibited at Venn Gallery in 2014 that were examining kind of archival conditions. So while they, uh, they don't necessarily refer to the context of the collection so much, they speak to, I suppose, the, the, the structures around collecting. They're made of blue tack and they're kind of made to, to deteriorate over time. But I also think, I can't really claim it, but I'd like to, uh, that these works kind of facilitated Teela's uh, engagement her, with her current body of work, which is looking at uh, women's oral histories. So she's been accessing a lot of uh, works in the uh, oral histories in the State Library of Western Australia and then translating those into paintings and kind of focusing on, like, she, she has this sort of renewed interest in, in I suppose, women's work and the, the, the history and politics of that. So she's been, she began making these embroideries shortly after working with the collection and viewing a lot of the, the textile works that were, that were held in it. Probably the, there was a large scale one of those exhibited in Primavera in 2000, in this year, last year, 2017. I'll hurry along. Um, something as well that the collection, I think, is quite useful for is acting as a kind of Trojan horse to sneak in other, other feminist projects that, uh, that use a collection, I suppose, as a, as a springboard, but don't necessarily draw from it. At the moment, I'm working towards a, an exhibition in the main galleries and the Lady Sheila Cutler's gallery based on the Artemis Women's Art Forum, which was a feminist collective active in Perth from 86 to 1990, so a relatively short amount of time. So this is a photo of some committee members um, and some outfits that look fairly contemporary. Um, from about 1989. The Artemis uh, archive at the State Library is what I'm sort of utilising as the basis from, so we're back at archives again, uh, the basis for this exhibition. So it's a series of commissioned works made by either, both former Artemis committee members and also uh, emerging, uh, I don't know what the terminology is now, early career, I suppose, artists, uh, that facilitate this kind of generational um, dialogue, intergenerational dialogue, which is something that I think is really easy. It's really lacking in Perth particularly because all of our artists moved to Melbourne or Sydney, so there isn't necessarily this kind of translation and transmission of knowledge between 
uh, between generations. I'd never heard of the Artemis Forum, even though most of the senior women artists in Perth were involved in it at some stage. Um, it's also, the archive is probably one of the most thorough documentations of any active organisation in Perth. There's meeting minutes, there's correspondence, there's this entire picture, not only of the archive, but of other women's, uh, women's organisations in Western Australia. Uh, which, and uh, it documents a really interesting um, interrelation between media and discipline. So the Artemis were a number of members of Artemis were also members of Cinematrix, which is a women in film and television department, or had relationships with the gender studies program at Murdoch, which produced a lot of um, a lot of really interesting kind of radical uh, uh, women who worked. Um, Linda Rawlings, who's in the middle of this photo, uh, eventually she was a documentary filmmaker who went on to, to found community midwifery uh, in WA, working in remote communities. Uh, assisting Aboriginal women to give birth on country rather than in um, rather than in hospitals. So this this kind of moment, uh, although visual arts is is, is a core, the core kind of foundation of it, shoots off all these other really interesting tra trajectories about what feminist practice kind of does in uh, in broader in broader society. So there, uh, there'll be an exhibition and a book. It's not necessarily related to the collection. It doesn't draw from the collection, but the research does allow me to add things to the collection. Ironically, because it's based in Western Australia, the Quellers collection is very limited in terms of representation of women artists in WA from the 1980s. This is a period that the Quellers family were living in New York and also John Quellers, who was advising them on uh, their... Um, their, their purchases was based in Sydney. So I've been able to discover all of these really fascinating links, not just uh, between women artists working in Perth, but also the connections they have with the women's art movement in Adelaide, with different poster collectives. This is an original gouache by uh, Michelle Elliott, who was in the photo previously, and just an illustration of how I often feel on a, on a daily basis. This was a women's art, uh, a women's uh, radio exhibition, uh, radio program, words, um, on 6UBS, which is a community radio station in Perth. Um, and I've been working with Jo Derbyshire on this exhibition as well, and discovering things from her... Um, her kind of back catalogue. So Jo, um, I suppose the fate of a lot of artists that stay to work in WA is that you end up making abstract paintings about the landscape, but Jo was really interested and did a lot of work around uh, queer and particularly lesbian representation in the 1930s. She did a residency in Paris uh, studying the, the subcultures that were active around the 1930s, so figures like uh, G uh, Juna Barnes and... Um, and and others, so the, this is a series of postcards that she made, um, in uh, one for every day that she was on residency. And just these drawings, I just love these drawings. This is um, Kathy on a Demented Night Before the Harmonious Conversion, August 87, just so great. Um, and then uh, these kind of portraits. Um, so all of these women are really amazing archivists. They've kept all of their, their work and their visual diaries and correspondence, everything from 30 years ago. I think because there's this impetus, because I think they've known that no one else is going to do it for, for them, that there's a real necessity to, to keep and to catalogue their information. The bottom slide is also like, I just, I, I just I love Jo so much. She, um, she, in this studio visit, she just handed me this like beautiful little gold box, this like perfect relic, and I opened it and she was like, oh, that's my pubic hair from the 1980s. Um, 
which, um, or it might not be her pubic hair, it might be someone else's pubic hair, but she kept this in this, be this beautiful little holy relic, and I'm going to exhibit it in, in, in the gallery in October. My registrar hates me at the, at, at the, at the moment. Um, Jo's uh, jo a person who, man, she, she also worked on this project in 2004 called the Gay Museum, so working with the WA Museum, which has almost no representation of gay and lesbian culture in Western Australia. So she invited a series of activists and artists and people in to basically queer their collection. So she presented a display that was, so she used things like uh, specimens of crabs or starfish or um, elements of kind of costuming and dress, and then rewrote didactic uh, didactic labels for them that spoke about the, the history of, um, of, of, of queer representation in, in WA. It was such a, just such a great project. Um, she's somebody who I, I'm really excited to uh, to kind of. She hasn't necessarily had a, an exhibition in an institution. She's very active, but also has sort of slipped, I suppose, off off off, um, off the radar a little bit. She's very funny. Um, I suppose also, actually, I'll get there in a little bit. I wanted to talk a little bit. Do I have time? Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna gonna bust through it really quickly. Um, the because I suppose the something. That I think it's really important that feminist projects within the museum engage with form as well as content. So the collection, uh, it, it, you know, it provides this sort of, it makes women's art visible within the institution, but if the institutional practices and policies and procedures replicate the same kind of biases and discrimination, then what, you know, where, where are we really? So we are... Uh, it does make sort of certain things visible within the institution. Just this year, we've actually achieved gender parity on both of the boards that oversee the Crothers Collection, so on the advisory committee and the, univers the University Cultural and Collections Board, just this year, after 10 years of the, the collection being in the university. There's also certain limitations. My position is two and a half days a week, uh, which is not really the kind of um, time that it's, I, I can't necessarily work on the projects at the scale or at the, with the level of advocacy that the collection can really benefit for. But I'm also really hyper aware of working um, beyond the hours that I'm paid for without adequate compensation. There's this kind of catch-22 of feminist projects and advocacy for women's art, art and women in general, is that often they require, because no one else is going to do it, uh, these voluntary uh, labour given freely, labours of love. Makusha Robinson wrote a really great article in Runway a couple of years ago about this, the way that women give their time freely because they understand that there's this lack of, of, um, of, uh, of, of attention, but then it perpetuates this, uh, this, this sort of idea that women's labour is worth less or that we will be given freely uh, without compensation. So you're really kind of stuck in a, in a bind there. Uh, so I spend a lot of time sort of advocating for uh, as much as, you know, to make it all about me, about, about being um, able to, uh, with basically being able to live. I remember sitting, I was trying to argue for, uh, I had to be, and this is the stuff that you're not really supposed to speak about in public, but um, I found out I was being paid a few levels below all the other curators at the, the gallery, so I had to argue for my position to be reclassified, and so I had to kind of write this case for why I should not be paid a wage that was uh, required an associate diploma rather than a, a master's degree. Um, and then I, I just was sitting around the kind of the board, the, in this board meeting, and I was like, yeah, you look, honestly, I just want to be able to pay my phone bill. And everybody laughed like it was this hilarious joke, like, oh, Gemma, you're so funny. It's like, no, I literally cannot pay my phone bill on my current on my current wage so there's this sort of um, kind of issue there 
Um, there's also, I, I suppose our, our stats, I'm, I'm, yeah, there's, our stats would look very good in, on, in terms of kind of Elvis's counting, but that does also disguise certain um, other kind of power and equi uh, power discrepancies. So how many works by women come from the collection and how many works are commissions or acquisitions where there's financial compensation for e exhibition at the gallery. And I think if you counted the number of women who have been acquired for the UWA art collection recently, you would see a substantial decline under the understanding that the, the Crothers collection really has that covered. So the collection within the institution offers this really great kind of... Um, uh, there's also the issue of the themes, which I didn't really get to. But so there's the, the policy, the election, the acquisition policy um, maintains the thematic focus that the Crothers set for the, the collection, which is focused on a particular interpretation of women's, uh, women's art, women's practice, women's experience, which is a fairly interesting curatorial challenge. So it's, this, it's a really fantastic initiative, but it does, once it kind of comes into the institution, it opens up all of these other questions about how and uh, and why it exists and how it can function within uh, a structure which has previously been, I suppose, so uh, has had so much antipathy towards antipathy towards um, women artists. I'll leave it there. That's it. Great. Cool. going to come up to the front um, and we don't have very much time because I'm sure Aka would like to close their doors but um, let's move the seats into the middle Janine we'll move the seat Any questions before you go? Okay. I'll, I'll just quickly. Um, are we all right to talk? Okay. We have gone way over time, ladies. Um, thank you so much to the four of you for speaking. I think um, a lot of really interesting um, approaches and strategies were kind of touched on about how individuals can intervene into institutions and how institutions can, um, whether they're galleries, journals, archives, how they can um, slowly adjust to the forces um, impelled on them through feminism and through feminist strategies. I, Gemma did just want to mention, and I'm not sure if you know of um, Kunsthalle C in Stockholm, a gallery which um, very much in line with what you're talking about has adopted a uh, really keen feminist uh, approach to their institutional frameworks. All of the staff there are paid the same wage, whether or not they're the director, the cleaner, the education manager. Um, and conversely, they, um, they switch roles, so everyone has a turn at director. Obviously, that, you know, um, is, has implications for the, um, you know, for their recruitment processes, but I think it's a really exciting model. I'm trying to advocate it to Max. But um, 
They also, apropos of what you said, um, use an app where they keep track of all of their working hours. They acknowledge that they can't be paid for all of those hours, but they record them so that their board and their funding bodies are aware of the, um, the time, the unpaid time that they work. And as you know, it's a really important issue for all of us, not just for women, but for all of us in the arts. Um, I'm going to open it up to the what remains of the audience, um, and if there's any questions to direct to um, to any of the speakers in particular. Otherwise, um, we can just chat amongst ourselves for a few more minutes. But um, yeah, if there's if there is anything, or maybe Gemma, you can talk a little bit more about. Maybe we should just finish it. Let's go and have a drink. <laughs> uh, it's just a suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for coming. <laughs> or you can come and ask us questions while we're having a drink. That's the other thing. I seem to have to. We can do some karaoke. Oh, no. Well, please join me in thanking all of our speakers and um, please also um, stay around and have a drink and continue the conversation. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to an ACCA podcast recorded by ACCA, the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art in Melbourne. To listen to more from us, subscribe to ACCA on Apple Podcasts or follow ACCA on SoundCloud. To find out more about our exhibitions and programs, visit aka.melbourne and sign up to our mailing list.